You are listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Welcome to episode 5 of ABS in Mind. This is your host, Diana Asachan. As always, we have a fantastic lineup today on what's top of mind for the DeadWire ABS team here. So let's get started. First, I'll be chatting with CEO of Pagai Asset Management, Gal Krubiner. Gal, thanks so much for joining. Thank you very much, Dana, for having me. Gal and I will try to address some of the new-ish debt structures that have popped in the marketplace lending space, as well as talk about the role of artificial intelligence and loan selection. Next, we have John Wylan, the managing editor of uh, DebtWire ABS. John, what's on your mind? I'm going to talk a little bit about a, uh, an ongoing battle for control of the National, National Collegiate Student Loan Trusts. We have uh, Larissa Patton next, who follows the esoteric assets for DeathWire ABS. Larissa, what are you going to talk about? I had the pleasure of attending the Airline Economics Growth Frontiers Conference here in New York City last week, so I want to talk about aircraft leasing. Sounds good. Right, gal. Can we start off with a brief intro to Pagaya? What are you guys all about? Sure, Diana. In a very high level, Pagaya is an asset manager uh, that takes advantage of data and AI in order to have a better way for institutional clients investing in fixed income in today's world. Can you give us an idea of uh, the size in terms of AUM? Sure. So we are just just about to cross the billion dollar, we're $950 million asset under management. We started our business like three years ago, uh, three and a half, originally from Israel, expanded to the U.S. We have now a team of more than 70 professionals. 55 to 60 out of which are either an AI or data analysts back in Israel and another team of 10 people here in New York, which is doing more the front-facing, um, sailing kind of uh, products and understanding where the market goes and staying in touch with the very vibrant fixed income market of the U.S. Can you describe what role AI plays in uh, your operations? Because uh, these days, everything you guys do is driven by artificial intelligence, right? Sure. So. If we need to think about it, I would I would try to describe it in a manner that investment decision and the way we select assets and we evaluate risk and pricing is really being done purely by AI and algorithms. So the bulk way of understanding what is the value of the different asset classes, as little as $100 loans and as big as a bond of millions of dollars, is being driven by the AI algorithms that knows to take almost endless amount of data and trying to come up with a much more accurate prediction of the behavior of that fixed income instrument into the future. On the other side, what we do as a more holistic approach, and that's where more investment professionals are coming into the play, is about the risk management. So putting the framework of what are the right questions to ask, what is the right due diligence to put into place, what are the right metrics that a portfolio should stand within the ability to observe different risk and stress testing. So I would argue that more the investment world and decision is being driven by the AI, and it's 100% automated, as you said, from going and catching the data up until evaluating the different risk and coming up with different scenarios of performance prediction. But on the other side of being able to drive a more holistic view of the ability to withstand within certain risk grades throughout the lifetime of investment, that's being monitored by investment professionals driven by tools that we have created internally 
in order to be able to monitor it mm -hmm. properly. All right. So as an investor coming into your fund, the benefits that I will see on my end, if I have no idea of what AI is and I don't know how all, all that works, what are the benefits that I will see? Would that be you know, return premiums? Would it be um, loans that otherwise I wouldn't even get access to? Or what is that? So it's, it's actually both. If you think about it, when you have a new way of doing things, which can grasp a better ability to assess risk, so you will have some loans in the past that you would think that are too risky to buy that you will put into your portfolio and therefore will be able to have a wider spectrum of borrowers and so on and loans to go into your portfolio. But in the same time, you will take some type of borrowers and loans outside of your potential portfolio and create a premium. Mm -hmm. So it's coming both on the ability to go wider as, as much as having the ability of being more accurate within the risk bands of um, different characteristics that you are deciding to go in. And, and if you think about it, it's a little bit like using quant back in the days to evaluate stocks. So when the Nasdaq came on electronically trading rather than with papers, a lot of trades that potentially would have been driven by traders suddenly didn't make sense because you had the ability to look on the historical performance of all of them and the ability to analyze the trends. So the same type of change we're seeing happening on fixed income when more and more trades are becoming electronically traded and recorded. And therefore, an AI algorithm has a better ability to absorb that data and coming with a much more accurate ability to know if that loan or stock mm -hmm. will go up and down in the future into which manner. Makes sense. And if we could take a quick step back, I know you guys are involved in several asset classes, but I wanted to talk specifically about mar marketplace lending. You, sure. uh, Pagaya had several ABS uh, that are pre-funded, actively managed by AI, and there's been a new structures aside from, you know, the old credit lines and ABS and whole loan sales, there have been new structures popping up in the marketplace lending sector, say, in the past 24 months. So I wanted to see, you know, what you are seeing from your end. Why is there a need for so many new structures? What are some of the interesting structures that you're seeing? And, you know, why is this new rush of expanding the investment um, models? So it's a great question. And I think we're in the stage of a very interesting era and you mentioned it as marketplace lending, we prefer to call it as consumer credit, mm -hmm. um, which we started back in 2006 with a few fintech players that created some kind of disruption and showed the world that theoretically back in the days it was we can skip the bank in between. But eventually, throughout the years, and especially when it started in 2012, they became a big source for institutional clients to go after different borrowers and to get exposure to consumer credit. The very early days from 2012, and you can call it up until 2015-16, was really about finding the first way for institutional clients to get any kind of exposure to that type of instruments. Now, in 15, 16, we saw some kind of a drawback when people try to assess from the beginning what is really the risk looks like and what is the ability to drive decision and performance into that. And I guess that what you see today in the last 24, today, but it actually started even 36 months ago when people started to design that, is that different inbounds came in and people did understand that this asset class is here to stay. 
And therefore, they were scratching their heads about the ability of getting them the exposure they wanted and they needed. And happens to be that for different type of players, anywhere from banks to big asset managers in structured products and up until the very aggressive hedge funds, different type of structures played a different role in the overall performance strategy. Mm-hmm. So what we see now, for example, when when the interest rate of the world is coming down, is more and more people are looking to get a better kind of squeeze in between what you can be funded in the street versus what this weighted average coupon of these loans is offering. So the big picture is that when the market got more matured, there were different ways to structure different type of structures around these same asset class to provide different premium characteristics, different risk profile return. And we see that some type of funding ways, which is very efficient, stayed as they are. And if you look about the 1 to 10 type of structures, which are very still strong in the ABS world. But in the same time, as you mentioned, there were like 3070, a path through certificates. So everyone is solving for a different cause. So we see the more open certificates as something that people just want to get a beta straight approach. On the 1 to 10 leverages, people are looking to get more at that type of uh, exposure. Um, and the 3070 is someone they want to leverage somehow the, the, the portfolio, but not too much. So I guess these are the three main kind of drivers that we see in the market that are driving that type of products to be originated. So like you said, this is more people trying to get the in-between of what the street has and what the weighted average coupon can offer you. But I'm curious, a lot of these deals aren't rated or aren't actively traded, at least right now. Is there any concern that this could affect the sector's liquidity um, at all? First of all, I would argue that the world has become less tradable as such. (laughs) So I would argue that liquidity is the biggest issue, a bit less in the esoteric, very unique places, but more on the very large, unsecured bonds um, of the world that Potentially, people view them as A-plus rated, as a super liquid liquid kind of instrument, but since weight, we don't have really market makers. So I think the drop there will be much more hard than this one, because here you're taking a premium that you're aware of that, but there you're not aware of that. But putting that aside, there are two main mechanisms for the underlying assets that reduce that risk tremendously. The first one is that the duration usually of that type of instruments is somewhere around one and a half years. That's the weighted average life. And therefore, if you think about it, the first year you can get something like 40 to 45% of your money back. In the very early days, if you want to get out and to liquidate, you still have a lot of principal out and you're looking to do that. But when you go down the spectrum, it's really becoming a self-amortizing product that I'm not sure how much driver will be to do these trades. Mm-hmm. In the same time, um, I, I, would, I would argue that the actually risk premium that you're taking for that type of liquidity is rather balanced. So yes, in downturn scenario, we'll have less ability to trade, but compared to what you're earning during good days, I would argue it's a good trade. And to your last point about rating, which is a very fair observation that, for example, I'm not sure how many CLOs I saw which are unrated Mm -hmm. on 
the consumer credit, this is a major chunk of the MPL production. And this is for two main reasons. One, usually the pools are static, so anyone can assess what they are buying and it's not a forward looking on a manager. And the other piece to that is that banks and big asset managers are very familiar with that asset class. So there is enough historical kind of performance to be able to assess and to understand how the curves look like, even if rating agencies are not coming into play, although it do impact the different type of investor that can participate in different deals. So because you have enough pockets which are not that sensitive to rating, you have still a very open market of doing that. The biggest population that we see which are having trouble without that which is not rated is obviously mainly the insurance companies. And it is true that in that type of instrument, they're a bit less important player rather than the rest. I was just going to ask, I mean, from an investor standpoint, you know, these pass-through through deals, what's the advantage of buying a pass-through uh, securitization versus just buying the loans. I mean, if you're just looking for the, the the higher yields from the loans, why not just buy the loans? The answers are both regulatory framework on different type of structures you're creating from an asset manager and the LPs you have behind. And the other piece to that is how easy it is. So to buy loans, you need to monitor all of them. You need to go all of this. So think about it as outsourcing. Right. The the actual holding and custody thing in a very constructive way. That's one and B that will create stand, standardizing in the in this world because think about a European bank that wants to go into that space. For him to have like ten thousand different loans, it's rather hard. For him to compare a certificate between a platform A or originator A to originator B, it's, I don't know if easier, but that's what he used to do in the last 30 years, right? right? So he can really look on the pros and cons and the legal around it, the custody parties. So it's more, I view it as you're paying whatever 20 to 50 bib for someone else to take care of all the hassle and the things that you're not sure that you're not aware of. The last question, you know, everybody's talking about a potential downturn sometime soon. First of all, how do you think these structures will uh, perform in, in, a, in a downturn like that if it happens? Is there a difference between holding this asset, this type of structures or holding an ABS? And just together with that, do you think we're heading into a space where AI could actually help safeguard some of the potential risks that can come with a potential downturn? So let me start from the end. So. To the AI question, I think definitely yes. I think a lot, a, a lot of the work that we do is trying to come up with not just what would be the right productability of performance, but what would be the right productability of performance in different macroeconomical scenarios. And to the stress testing and things that usually is harder to do when you have limited machine power or limited data. And as of today, we have endless amount of historical performance data that we can be more accurately about the ability to simulate and to stress test these things. So I think, yes, in, in a downturn scenario, you will see even a bigger distinguish between active smart strategies to a very basic strategies. To the question of um, if I view that a downturn is coming, I think in the investment world, the, the question is relative because we're all working with big institutions and they all have to stay invested. And what they can do is to shift between allocations 
And if you think about high yield bonds or investment grades, I think liquidity risk is higher there. Duration risk is much higher there. The QE injected much more money into companies versus to the consumers. They didn't get that much of a difference between sense of the QE. So I would argue that the biggest pockets of risk that are being created in a loosening type of environment is more on the corporate side and the more easy to access type of instruments mm-hmm. rather than the esoteric type of things. And to the question of what different type of structure could impact, yes, you, ne- you need to know what you're dealing with, right? So you need to know to stay away from um, a different CNL triggers, from a different uh, um, in CLOs, it's triple C bucket, um, and to know to manage that risk properly. But assuming you got that right, I would argue that this is the best place to be if a downturn is coming because there is a very big lag between so to speak, a crisis in the markets up until the actually unemployment is picking up, if at all, and then how it impacts about the ability of customers to pay. So in our view, and we get a lot of phone calls lately, it's more about downside protection rather than upside creation. It's a good place to live this. Thank you, Gal, so much. John, we're off to you now. Yeah, so as I said at the top, um, I've been writing a lot about these uh, National Collegiate Student Loan Trusts, or uh, short, shorter versions of NCSLTs, for two, a little over two years now. There's really a battle going on uh, uh, for control of these trusts between the equity owner on one hand and in the other corner, bondholders, uh, which are supported by the trustees, servicers, and their bond insurer. These are pre-crisis trusts that were issued by First Marblehead. First Marblehead went bankrupt, and uh, the equity now is held by a Florida company called Vantage Capital Trust. They acquired the uh, equity interest over uh, uh, the last several years. Vantage has uh, tried to do a couple things to kind of take control of the the trusts. One of the things is uh, to appoint a new default loan servicer. It's a company called Odyssey Education Resources and just happens to be owned and controlled by Vantage. Vantage also negotiated a $19 million servicing practices settlement with the CFPB. They didn't get bondholder consent for either move. Uh, So the bondholders are pretty unhappy with that, and they've been joined by the uh, trustees and the servicers and the insurer and others in saying that Vantage has no right to do these things. Uh, You know, they say that at securitization, First Marblehead granted away the right to appoint servicers and the right to direct and approve uh, litigation and settlements like the CFPB settlement. And, you know, indeed, you know, most securitizations work this way. The issuer sells the loans, they get cash, the uh, bondholders, you know, pay for the uh, uh, essentially rights to control the assets until they're paid back. But Vantage claims in a bunch of different litigation that these trusts are, are quote-unquote, owner-directed Delaware statutory trusts, which give the owner the right to do these types of things. Of course, the bondholders argue that that's nonsense. Vantage also claims justification for what it's doing uh, due to the loan's terrible performance. It cites uh, the CFPB's allegations that the trust servicers sued borrowers to collect on loans the trust can't prove they own, robo-signed affidavits, and essentially bungled away the ability to collect on $5 billion worth of the loans, about a a third of their collateral. Um, There are a lot of lawsuits over this, and uh, Vantage has has one key win. They uh, got a federal court to approve their uh, Odyssey servicing appointment. 
but that uh, that ruling is on appeal by the bondholders in U.S. Bank. The CFPB settlement, uh, which uh, occurred in uh, September 2017, has been contested by the bondholders, U.S. Bank, uh, trustees of servicers, and all the other trust parties, and that, that case is in discovery. Uh, there's a lot of other cases I won't get into here, but the, the big question I've had from all this litigation is, you know, would a Vantage win here hurt the rest of the securitization industry? There have been a lot of dire predictions. Obviously, the investors say that it will. Investors claim that it, you know, violates the securitization bargain, uh, you know, where basically they paid the issuer $15 million in cash and got control over the loans and the trusts. The structured uh, uh, finance group, uh, which was uh, at the time this SFIG, filed a brief in the CFPB case saying that the settlement would be, quote, profoundly detrimental to capital markets, would, quote, most likely deal a body blow to the national economy, and, quote, would signal to the investing public that indentures are no longer binding. Uh, so my question has always been, could somebody else try to do this? Has Vantage discovered some kind of a chink in the armor of you know the securitization legal armor to let equity owners and issuers come in and try to do the same thing? Um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of market sources about this. You know, people are worried about the precedent this could set for sure, but they think that it's unlikely that other equity owners will try to do the same type of thing. They, they point out that Vantage's uh, equity position is unusual. They're completely out of the money in these trusts. So, uh, and as, as it's been explained to me, the litigation expenses to a trust are charged to equity after a certain amount that's charged to the top of the waterfall. So, you know, it only makes sense to ramp up litigation expenses if you're, if, if you, you essentially have nothing to lose. And they've, you know, they have no other uh, uh, way of uh, uh, getting a return here. Um, another anomaly here is that the special servicer appointment was uh, uh, essentially amended into the de deals later, uh, later in the process after after their loan insurer declared bankruptcy. There was no special servicer to begin with, so um, um, there was an amendment at some point to add a special servicer, and that assignment has changed hands a couple times. So one of the sources thinks that wasn't a very well thought through amendment and created some legal ambiguities that give, you know, let Vantage try to kind of, of uh, exploit the deals for uh, some kind of gain. And, you know, people told me basically few other deals have a similar amended in servicer kind of structure, and, you know, few other deals have, uh, you know, an equity position that's completely out of the money. The bottom line here is, yes, this could set a potentially bad legal precedent, but, you know, it's, will anybody else try this? It's possible, but kind of unlikely due to, uh, you know, the, the unique situation here. Did I miss it? How long has this been going on? Uh, well, the suits, I, I've been covering it for a couple of years, but the suits date back, you know, several years before that. So, you know, middle of this decade, I think. Uh, Vantage uh, uh, attempted to appoint this servicer in 2014, I think. Oh, and there's... And, no, they didn't inform anybody, so it kind of took everybody by surprise. And, you know, it kind of went along for a while before, you know, the bondholders and some of the other service providers caught on and started making filings in the cases to try to block it. And there's no sense of, like, end of the tunnel coming at any point. No, it really kind of depends. You know, there's a bunch of different cases in a bunch of different stages. You know, it could be years more before, you know, anything's really resolved. So what will Vantage get out of this? Why are they doing this? By appointing a servicer that they control, you know, one of the things they could get is servicing fees. In fact, they build the trusts for servicing fees, and one of the battles con concerns uh um, you know, the bondholders and everybody else saying, no, we don't pay those. And, you know, so they're, they're in court in various cases fighting over whether or not the, um, the trust should pay their servicing fees. Also, there's a clause in the agreement uh, that was signed to appoint the servicer that lets the servicer sell loans at some kind of a discount. So there's a, an, you know, an argument that they'll somehow uh, benefit from that by selling the loans. 
Very interesting, right? Follow uh, John's coverage on NCSLT case and Deathwire. Uh, Larissa, we're off to you now. Yes, aircraft leasing. First things first, uh, what many people want to know, what is the expectation for issuance in 2019 and where will volume end up? The short answer is higher than last year. In 2018, there were 12 deals issued at a total of about 7.6 billion. This year, we've had 12 deals issued at a total of about 7.6 billion, but we still have a couple months left in the year, and there is the anticipation that a few more deals will come to market before the close of 2019, and volume could get as high as 10 billion. Regardless, though, even if a couple of those deals slip into 2020, issuance is expected to surpass last year. And just for some growth context, about 6.6 billion was issued in 2017 and a little over 4 billion in 2016. So we really have seen this sector grow year over year. And the airline industry now is what's commonly known as in its phase three. Uh, The sector saw a lot of disruption after 9-11 and then again after the last financial crisis, but it really bounced back and it's grown, which is evidence from the uh, issuance forecast that I just mentioned. And a lot of that is due to a boom in global travel and a growing middle class. However, at the conference, there did seem to be some concern for the growth coming from these newer issuers, which entered the market in this phase three as we head towards some kind of potential downturn. This is a conversation that we've heard in marketplace lending and subprime auto before, which is newer, untested issuers that have come into the sector but have not been through a recession. So how will they perform, and will we see some consolidation and shutting of doors? Now, this was a conference that allowed press to attend, so of course no one wanted to name names, uh, but there did seem to be uh, an agreement that everyone needs to start keeping their eye on the newer issuers that came in during this phase three. And finally, not to be all doom and gloom, uh, we could see some downgrades. One example, S&P has stated its intentions to downgrade Aviation Capital Group once a sale of the company to Tokyo Century is final. It was announced in September that ACG will be sold to Tokyo Century from Pacific Life Insurance Company, and S&P has stated that it doesn't believe that Tokyo Century is as strong as a parent company as Pacific. Once the sale is final, which should be before the end of this year, S&P intends to lower ACG's issuer credit rating and unsecured debt rating to triple B minus from single A minus. ACG has issued two ABS deals, the $251 million Merlin 2016-1 deal and the $477 million Mop 2019-1 deal. Hopefully those deals should perform as expected despite this anticipated downgrade, but it will be interesting to see what, if anything, happens to the performance of those bonds outstanding. Interesting. And I know you've been reporting on one other issue that a lot of people are uh, following. Um, Are there any updates on the 737 MAX grounding? Yes, you cannot go to an aviation event without that question coming up. The answer is early 2020. They expect to have these jets flying again. But the question is, how will they roll those jets out? Um, As of now, more than 1,000 jets are still grounded. That's a lot of planes to get back in the air. And when will be the... When they will be able to roll them out. Will it be a slower season? Will people be traveling less? So that's a question. And the bigger question is its impact on lease rates. You know, right now, it's actually negative for the airlines because the lessors are still getting paid regardless of those jets flying. But once they fly, will consumer hesitancy to get back on those jets actually lower those lease rates for the airlines? So will it flip and become a positive for the airlines? So we'll have to see. What is the investor sentiment there? Where are they leaning? Uh, The investors aren't 
too concerned because, as I mentioned, you know, the lessors are still getting paid, so the deals are still are performing as they should. It's really the airlines that are taking a hit right now. Mm-hmm. I was wondering this yesterday as I was getting on my airplane to fly here from <laughs> Florida, and I looked at the plane and I thought, if this was a mat, one of those Max planes, would I get on? I don't know. And you know, right. how many? How many people are going to be willing to go get on one of these, given all the stuff that you know has come out about you know what happened with them? Then how many people check the type of airplane they're getting on? I don't know in advance, but <laughs> and I don't know that it's really an ABS question. But I, I started wondering, like, what happens to Boeing if they have to buy all these back or somehow give back the money for them and can't use them at all? I mean, well, unfortunately, I'm idly speculating here, but who knows? Well, unfortunately for the consumer, that is not an option because the wait list for jets is so long and it takes so long to build one jet, they're not going anywhere. The interesting option that did come up is rebranding. I was going to say, they should rename them. Consumer sentiment and consumers' memories are very short, and rebranding is very effective. So they may just rebrand them, and people will forget what a 737 is. And to answer your question, Deanna, not many people actually check out the plane when they get on. One investor was telling a story about when he gets on a plane, he knows exactly what type of plane it is, he knows exactly how old it is, and he knows that it's 10 years old but they've redone the uh, entertainment screens and everyone's like look at this brand new jet this beautiful brand new jet that we're on and he said I know for a fact that that thing's 12 years old. <laughs> well um, I don't know where this leaves us check your airplanes I guess <laughs> thank you uh, very much for this update and thank you Gal, John and Larissa and our producer Anthony for putting this together and we'll see you all next time Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.